coronavirus is about. I don't understand how that shit was from Wuhan, China. Now all of a sudden this shit is a motherfucking tour. And let me tell y'all something. I ain't even gonna front. A bitch is scared. I'm a little scared, you know what I'm saying? Like, shit, shit got me panicking. And a lot of you motherfuckers think it's a joke. Kiki, 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 like I was thinking, right? Aside from listening to Cardi, it would be irresponsible of me to not make reference to what we're experiencing as a planet right now. COVID-19 is, in fact, real. It was something that at the beginning of the month, March, I didn't necessarily take particularly seriously in the idea that I just didn't think it would come to the extent that it has. But here we are. I hope that if you do have to go outside, you are practicing social distancing, staying six to ten feet. Me personally, I stay ten feet away from people if it's at all possible. I hope you have masks, and if you don't, you have something to cover your mouth. For those of you who are listening that are in essential positions, health care, delivery services, food, hospitality as far as providing shelter, my thoughts and prayers, and I mean that seriously, my thoughts and prayers are with you every single day of the week. I have a couple of items that are currently free that for those of you who are at home and now dealing with your new normal of being at home, I have a couple of things that I have created that may help you with your time. Maybe they won't. Maybe you can share them with someone who can benefit. One of them is a free self-care time management worksheet, a pack of worksheets, actually. If you look in the notes for this show, you'll see the link to that and you can download that for free. And there's also an episode Prior to this one, my Monday motivation episodes that I've launched, just in case some of you might not be familiar. The most recent one that I created has a meditation in it that is available completely for free for a limited time. And once it become, once it stops being free, it is going to be unbelievably affordable, less than a cup of coffee. So I hope you'll use that in good health and good cheer. And again, please stay safe. And I wish you and your families the best during this time. The wolf, Canis lupus, also known as the gray wolf, is a large canine native to Eurasia and North America. It is the largest extant member of Canidae. Males average 88 pounds and females average 82. Of all the members of the genus Canis, the wolf is the most specialized for cooperative game hunting, as demonstrated by its physical adaptations to tackling large prey, its more social nature, highly advanced expressive behavior welcome to the dating after divorce survival guide after getting his master's degree in getting cursed out his second master's in getting kicked out eric payne decided to pursue his doctorate in getting his life right and staying in his own lane but upon getting all his degrees he realized he was a fish out of water in this new dating landscape eric was 28 years old when he met his ex-wife and was newly divorced at 43. The world had changed considerably since the days of StarTech beepers, Motorola flip phones, and Yahoo Chat. It is vicious out here in these new streets where taking pictures of yourself all day long with a phone and posting them on the internet is actually a thing. The Dating After Divorce Survival Guide is the story of Eric's journey from love and marriage to divorce to dating to hopefully love and marriage once more. season of the wolf
I would go on to do 50 jumps with my jump rope, one push-up, one sit-up, and one pull-up. This was January 1st, 2017, the first day of the rest of my life. When I had my daughter with me, everything was fine. She took up all of my time. I cooked for her. I read to her. I did homework with her. I played games with her. I sang with her. I annoyed her. I got her to bed on time. I got her up for school. I was completely occupied. And then I went to work. But on the days that I didn't have her, and I was on this weird schedule at the time. This was before we switched to a, I have joint custody with my daughter. And this is before we switched to a, a full-on week-to-week thing that was upon my daughter's request. The days that I didn't have my daughter, particularly the Fridays that I didn't have my daughter, you'd think, oh man, it's time to go out and get get you know get busy and do what you got to do and have fun and da 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 da. However, for me, I was making money. I was working for a university at the time. I could come and go as I pleased. I had time. Friday nights were the worst for me. I wouldn't even come home from work. I would I would stay late. I'd be there till 5, 6 o'clock. Well, not 5, but I'd be there till 5, 30, 6 o'clock at night. And then I would go window shop and pick up food. And this was happening one Friday after Friday after Friday. Not consecutive Fridays because that wasn't the arrangement. But I'm saying on the Fridays that I was alone, I didn't want to come home. I realized that I didn't want to come home because I didn't want to come home to an empty house, especially once I got my house. It was a little easier when I lived in my apartment because there were so many retail spaces underneath. So you could, you, you could, I could blow off not necessarily being home because the apartment was relatively small and there were so many things to do in the neighborhood. But once I moved into my home and my home was geographically away from retail spaces, I mean, driving distance, but like not housed in the same area. I didn't, I wasn't coming home. I wasn't coming home till nine, 10 o'clock, sometimes 11 o'clock at night, just tooling around doing nothing, going to art galleries, eating at restaurants, getting takeout, mostly going to stores, Best Buy, the mall, window shopping, ideating on what I would have whenever I had the money to, you know, had more money or after I budgeted stuff. I was lonely. I was in pain. One of the biggest faults or I'm not really sure of the word right now at the moment because it escapes me. But one of the biggest slights that comes to a parent. Some parents don't care. Some parents do care. But one of the, one of the biggest slights that can happen. One of the biggest unfortunate realities of no longer being with a spouse that you share children with is that. You don't get to say goodnight to your children every night. I said goodnight and good morning every night and every day to my daughter. From the moment that she was born till the day I left my house. Now, I continue to do that via text. But there's something to be said about being able to tuck your child in at night. Be able to pray with them or pray over them whether they you know, fall asleep or not. Be able to hold them, give them a hug before they say goodnight. Be able to kiss their forehead. Be able to check on them in the middle of the night when you're up doing whatever it is you're doing. Or just wake up and go to the bathroom and decide you want to check on your kid. That was gone for me. 
And although my nights were no longer restless because I was somewhere comfortable talking about my brand new home and my brand new bed and without the stress of a crumbling relationship or, you know, at this point I was petering out of the online dating experience that I mentioned in season one. There was something missing from my life. But what I realized is that what was missing I couldn't get back one, you know, and I was angry about it. I, I talked about it to anybody who would listen. I was very angry about it, but I was also given something else in exchange for the time that I was spending raising my child with my wife. When I was married, I was given time. So the question was, what was I going to do with the time that I had? Was I going to burn it up? Was I going to be out in these streets doing whatever? Or was I going to figure something out that was going to make me better? And I decided that I wanted to be better than I ever had ever, 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 ever been before in my life. I didn't know how I was going to do it at 45, 46. But it was something that I wanted to do and something that I was determined to do. One day at a time. One push-up at a time, one pull-up at a time, one sit-up at a time. At work, I was excited when I told my coworkers that were active about my plans to build my workout one day at a time, one rep at a time. But they laughed at me. I mean, not in a bad way. They just thought I, it was a kooky idea. But I knew me. I knew, I knew I was coming from a place of unbelief in myself, and I needed to begin as gently as possible be as gentle with myself as I possibly could and afford myself as much grace as I possibly could so I wouldn't retreat once the work got hard because the thing is right I had worked out with a trainer the year before and he's by far one of the greatest souls I've ever met period his name is Andre Davis his company is fit in fit out he's on Instagram as fit in fit out spelled exactly the way it sounds he taught me to believe in myself and he yelled and screamed at me the entire time I worked out. But it was all positive affirmations. It was 45 minutes of positive affirmations. It, it was crazy. It didn't even make any sense. He was so positive. But, you know, he left me. He left me here. He left me, left me here in Atlanta. Atlanta, Georgia, all by myself. I mean, not really by myself. He left me and all the rest of his clients because, you know, he was in business to try to support himself. And he moved to California with his woman and he never looked back. He's been thriving ever since. And look, I'm not going to be mad at him. I mean, shoot. I like if, if that kind of opportunity came up and I had the opportunity to move across the country with somebody that I was in a relationship with and believed in, then I would do the exact same thing. But when he left, I lost my focus and the self-sabotaging thoughts that were that I had returned at least as far as fitness went and, and the pudge that I had gained because, you know, I had lost so much weight going through my divorce that my ribs were showing. And my alternative to deal was to eat junk and I put on 25 pounds of fat. So, and that fat kind of just didn't go anywhere and I gained weight proportionally. So it looked like I looked 
you know, slim and trim, if you will, but it was about three or four layers of extra me on top of me that was all proportional. I don't get a big belly. I just get big everywhere. So all of that post-divorce weight kind of just did, came. It, 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 it wasn't like it was going away, but it was reforming when I was working out with Dre reforming you know it was shifting around kind of like the way people talk about weight moving versus you know losing weight but like looking different and looking better but that wasn't happening um I started to just get back to being pudgy because I just stopped I lacked focus and I just stopped doing anything so my reason for doing things one rep at a time then two reps at a time then three then four with each passing day was to make me accountable to me and not make it any trainer's job but to do it slowly so I didn't notice the work piling on and would be less inclined to retreat from it I mean especially in January when all the warriors who are like new year new me yo I'm gonna get this summer body I'm gonna get this summer fit I'm gonna get my six-pack after all these years I'm gonna do it I'm gonna do it you know what I'm saying I'm gonna do it like they flood the gyms they are there from Monday to Friday you can't get on no equipment. For those of us who have worked out over the years, we know the science. So you don't go on Monday. You go on Tuesdays. And then in January, yeah, the gym is a zoo. Can't do nothing. So most people who really work out kind of sort of take off in January. Like they do stuff, but they kind of take January off because what we all knew, and I knew this back in the 90s. Yeah, I wasn't working out in the 80s. I knew this back in the 90s and the early 2000s. By January 15th, which is now MLK Day, Martin Luther King Day, they're all gone. They're all back home. So they're like, yeah, I put in a good two weeks. And I put in a good two weeks. Let me take a break. Let me sit down. Let me let me applaud myself. And then they never go back to the gym. Or they're like, yo, I bit off more than I can chew. I don't know why I tried to do this, blah, blah, blah. And they don't come back to the gym. I didn't want to be that guy. So I took my time and I gave myself grace and I did it one rep at a time, one day at a time, again and again and again until the work started to build up. Hey you, you, right there, you, yeah you, the one listening, I hope you like what you're hearing and I hope you've heard season one. But if you haven't, all you got to do is scroll down a little bit and you'll see it. Please subscribe and share. Please share with your friends. Let everybody know we're all in this together. Now back to the show. When it came to work, I was doing just fine. I was a director of marketing and communications, marketing and communications for an HBCU. And I enjoyed myself. I enjoyed the work. I enjoyed the people. I enjoyed the energy and I enjoyed the gift of being employed. I had been on the job six, approximately six months once uh, January hit. I had been to the mayor's ball, I had been to numerous events, and I had been exposed to a lot of Black Atlanta, if I can say that. Well, I am black, so I'm going to say that. Black Atlanta exclusivity that I probably wouldn't have considered... Um, participating in had I not had the role that I had so I had some pretty good experiences with that and seeing things that I normally would see on a potential society page or 
in a blog post or on social media. It was cool. Got to see Sheila E. perform. I saw John Lewis a few times, Andrew Young a few times. Got to be up close and personal with those individuals. And it was great to just be in the presence of that greatness. The interesting thing about that job was that it was the first job I had since being divorced. And it was the first job I had that I didn't get based on or even try to pursue based on some hardcore driven desire to provide for someone else. Now, of course, I was going to provide for my daughter. My son's grown, obviously. But of course, I'm going to provide for my daughter. And I want to have a few bucks to throw at him here and there when he actually can't get the money himself um, because that's something that my parents did for me but previously when I was getting jobs I was uh, I used to think well you know this will elevate me to a certain economic position not for financial goals but it will make me look more good or more good it'll make me look better in the eyes of my what was now my ex-wife I'll be more of a provider the more money I make the better off I'll look. The more money I have, the more we'll be able to do stuff. The more money I have, the more trips we can take, the more houses we can buy, blah, blah, blah. All of that was gone as a single divorced man. And it felt good. I remember my first day on the job in June. I parked on the roof of the parking deck because, well, I didn't know where else to park. And I remember getting out of my car and looking up at the sun the sky was like so blue and the clouds were so white. And I remember just standing there and I let the sun bathe over me and I let the, you know, the breeze. It was morning, so it was before it got super hot. And it was, it was just nice. I took a moment to thank God and I appreciated it, meaning the, the opportunity for the position. It wasn't something my desire to show and prove had more to do with just showing and proving on the job than showing and proving to anyone else. I walked to the elevator by myself and I remember saying to myself, man, this feels so different than any other time in my life because I don't have anything to prove. I got on the elevator, something that I got out of the habit of doing real quick because that elevator was mad rickety. And I walked to the office. I walked the path to the office, the, the path that I had walked when I first interviewed a few months earlier it felt like a new chapter, a new beginning, because in fact it was. There was no one to answer to. I can't express that enough. There was no one to answer to. I had forgotten that feeling. That was the feeling that I had when I was in my 20s and my early 30s where I didn't have anybody to answer to. Well, let's say 20s because I met my ex at the age of 28. And although that sort of didn't kick in until maybe like 35, 36 Let's say in my early 20s is when I felt that, man, this is brand new. Man, look at the world. Man, watch me do what I need to do. Man, world, thank you. I can just live my life and live it to the fullest, my fullest expectations. As I walked that morning, it just felt so good. I was beginning again. And in retrospect, it was me becoming 20 years old or having a 20-year-old opportunity all over again. How many of us don't have the opportunity to start over? That's something that I didn't see, didn't understand, didn't grasp at the moment. And it was something that would cause me trouble further along as I journeyed 
to today. Living a life free of the expectations of others was an amazing feeling. And that's what I felt as I walked to my office for the first time in June of 2016, I guess it was. But that freedom was something that I was going to have to guard and protect every single day of my life from that point forward. Why? Because I experienced it. Why? Because freedom of the expectations of others is true freedom. It's something that's good. It's something that will bring peace to you. It's something that now I'm not saying you don't have to be accountable to people, but I'm talking about their expectations. Being free of expectation, that is true freedom. Because that is the prison in which most of us lock our minds in. The money that we make, the cars that we drive, the clothes that we wear, the houses that we have. A lot of that is based around the expectations of mothers. Imagine there's that thing that people say, what would you do if you didn't have to... If, if money wasn't an issue, well, I'll pose it differently. What would you do if you could care less about what anybody else thought about you? What an amazing proposition. But as I said, freedom from the expectations of others was something that I was going to have to protect and fight to protect on a daily basis from that point forward. And the thing that I didn't realize or recognize on that first day, I'm going, I'm talking about June, but I'm speaking now, I'm going to switch back to January is that I was in a leadership role. A visible leadership role. Something that I probably hadn't experienced before because, yeah, I've been in leadership roles, but, you know, corporate structures, there's so many people and people spend a lot of time trying to marginalize each other and departments get swept under the rug by other departments and there's all these battles going on above your head and all you're doing is being the unfortunate beneficiary of trickle-down nonsense, right? In, a, in many organizations, I'm not speaking for all, I'm talking about many organizations and I'm speaking specifically about my experiences. But that wasn't the case in this particular position where I was working in an institution of higher education. I was a visible leader. And there was there were expectations that were placed upon me. Now, I said earlier, I said something about accountability, but they were treated, they, they, there were expectations. There were expectations that were there were expectations that were levied on me and I balked against those expectations. But ultimately, I was accountable to be a leader. And as I grew and evolved into my role and I grew quickly because I didn't have a choice, two things happened. The first was I became a notorious office flirt. I mean, I was surrounded by beautiful black women, all hues, all shapes, all sizes, all positions, all experiences. And it was just, you know, it was it was hard to resist. And I was coming into my own swagaliciousness. I was finishing up or rounding out the dating because this was January of 2017. So this was around the time that I was closing out my dating that I mentioned in season one. Specifically, the white girl who loved me. Episode six of season one. But I was highly visible. And I was going from office to office. My job required me to be a little mobile. I was leading a couple meetings. I was in front of a lot of people. And, you know, it, it, it felt nice to be listened to. It felt nice to be valued. It felt nice to be heard. And I think having been in that situation, in dealing with the traumas that I know for a fact that I wasn't really addressing because I don't think that I knew that they were there, I became 
incredibly virile, not physically virile, but I came, became very vir virile. Like my energy that was coming with my evolution into becoming the person that I am today was hadn't yet formed. So, you know, when you're forming the clay, it's looking the way it kind of should look, but it ain't really there yet. And then you have to trim off stuff. Well, there was all of this fattiness, all of this extra clay, all of this stuff, all of this garbage, this waste that was coming to the surface. And that was like this inability to manage the attention that I was getting as a man of color in a position of in a in a pro high profile semi high profile position being surrounded by women of color and I mean it you know I don't even know if it matters a man of color I think it's just being you know a man in a particularly female dominated environment but more importantly than that or more critical than that I started to understand what it meant to be a leader there was a key stakeholder someone that I had to work for that kind of gave me a hard time. His comment to me was that as a director of marketing and communication, I need you to tell me what to do. I don't need you to ask me. I may or may not approve what you're coming to me with, but it's on you. I don't want you to ask me. I want you to tell me. And admittedly, I had never really dealt with that before. I had never really been given that opportunity before. But I, you know, as I began to understand what he was saying to me, and I definitely appreciate, uh, it wasn't the best working relationship, but I definitely appreciate his tutelage. One of the things that I came to understand is that leadership is not a coveted position. Yeah, everybody wants to be a leader, but only a few people lead, can lead. It's not, it's not something, although it's coveted, it is not something that I think people truly understand until they get into the position. They don't understand the loneliness. They don't understand the responsibility. And they don't understand the unpopularity that comes with being a leader. Because when you're a leader, you have to make decisions that don't go well with, with everyone around you sometimes. And that's the same thing as being a parent. You make decisions that your children don't like and then your children rail against you. But you know what? And I'm not dumbing down a relationship, but when you're in a marriage relationship as a man and you are being, you are desired to be a leader and there's a whole nother conversation for a whole nother time about traditional roles or men not being allowed to be men or women being forced to have to lead and all this, that, and the third. But what I'm speaking from is from my own personal experience, being a leader means stand, deciding what needs to happen. Definitely seeking buy-in if you're in a relationship, especially with a partner who's supposed to be your equal, but taking the lead on things, acting on what you think is best and trusting that process. Being a leader is saying what you say, not putting your foot down and being all crazy, but saying what you say and sticking to it. Being a leader means sometimes you have to go outside of your home, believe it or not, and seek the guidance of other people who are leaders or better leaders than you for input. For those of you who are listening who are either on the outs or on your way on the outs or not on the outs or just happily married or are trying to be married at some point, I will tell you this much. It is not a good idea to seek input from your wife. I'm speaking as a man now, <laughs> as a husband, a former husband. It is not a good idea to seek input from your wife when she is seeking leadership from you. It's not a good idea. It's not a good look. 
That doesn't mean lie. You might have to say, hey, honey, let me get back to you in a couple of days. I'll give you an answer. But, you know, there are times when it is a collaborative experience. And then there are times, depending on the person that you're with, and it is truly dependent on the person that you're with, when they're like, I don't want to have to think about this. I don't want to have to participate in the development and execution of this. If you do it, I'm a ride with you. So do it. And that's what being a leader is. Having the chutzpah, the wherewithal, the courage, the fearlessness, whether you are afraid or not, to lead, to bring you, your family, your wife, your children, your girlfriend, if you're serious, forward on a path together. That doesn't mean that she can't have her own thing. She should have her own thing, in fact. But it is on you to bring to 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 steer the ship to see to identify the rough waters ahead to make decisions that aren't necessarily popular decisions but standing by them even in the midst of being unpopular i kept the peace and in keeping the peace in the end i was told i was vanilla i did whatever was easy i didn't offer up any kind of conflict and, or I didn't offer up any kind of resistance in conflict. I mean, that's not true. I mean, when it came to conflicts, I mean, the conflicts were insane. But I mean, in terms of differing views, different ways of doing things. And I always was asking her what she wanted to do after she told me what she wanted to do. To boil it down even more simply, honey, I want to go out to eat. I haven't been, I've been in the house all week or we haven't done anything in a while. I want to do something. Well, what do you want to do? That's not what's being asked of you. You're being asked, you're being tasked with figuring it out. And if that person complains, if there's an issue, whatever, whatever, you know, that's bound to happen. But I'm going to tell you, they're going to very much more appreciate the leadership in just setting things up and telling them where they have to be. Then you asking them the whole way along. I mean, you know, do you like red? Do you like roses? You know, do you prefer steak versus, you know, bison? Do you want ribs or do you want chicken wings? Do you want, you know, vegetarian versus, you know, well, I just said chicken wings and bison. So anyway, being a leader requires you to lead. When I was in the position that I was in as director of marketing and communications at the HBCU where I worked for a little while, I finally came to understand what it meant to be a leader. And I finally came to realize whether my fault or not, I finally came to realize that I had not been a leader in my marriage. And that honestly pissed me off. This has been the Dating After Divorce Survival Guide. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe if you haven't already. And please share with a friend, one or two or three or ten, that you think could benefit from this. You can follow me on Instagram at Eric L. Payne. You can follow me on Facebook at Dating After Divorce Guide. Once again, thanks for listening. Tune in in two weeks for episode two of season two. Season of the Wolf.